0: Scripture reading this morning is going to come from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. The privilege of giving our attention to the hearing of God's word. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You know, I grew up with a a mother who was more than a little cautious about the drugs that she would allow doctors to put inside her children. Uh, And this was especially true of anything that she deemed to potentially be addictive. Uh, One substance that was banned was uh, nitrous oxide. Nitrous used to be what we called laughing gas uh, back in the day, and I was not allowed to have it as a young man. But I couldn't bear it because I thought as a young man being denied of something that sounded quite that much fun uh, was foolish. So when the time came for my general dentist to take my wisdom teeth out when I was 18 years old, I determined that I was every bit the man to be able to handle that experience. So I asked the dentist to give me the gas. <clears throat> so When the day of my surgery arrived, I sat in the dentist chair, and the nurse came and prepped me appropriately, placing this little gentle uh, uh, nose mask over my face. And she instructed me very carefully by saying, look, this is going to make you feel a little lightheaded, um, but that should don't worry, just breathe normally. That's the key phrase there, breathe normally. Simple enough, right? But of course, if you've ever been the recipient of nitrous, you'll know that the effect is pretty immediate, is it not? And the first breath I took instantly launched me into free-floating space, instantaneously. And of course, the first time that I was experiencing this, mind you, with this mind-altering substance, I did what any normal person would do. I completely discarded what the nurse said, and I began to inhale like this through my nose as deeply as I possibly could, right? Now, this is where the illustration ends for our purposes this morning, because in the name of decorum, What happened next is that the nitrous made me nauseous, and that's a story you will not get me to tell from this pulpit. But there is a reason why I want to tell that story, because we've been talking about the book of Romans as this antidote to to ordinary Christianity, and last week we said that the benefits of justification arrive into our hearts through the instrument of faith, The faith of Abraham, as it turns out, delivers the goods that were won by God's people on the cross. And so having established this fact, Paul then turns in chapter 5 to unpack the benefits of justification. In other words, what Paul wants us to do, having explained justification and how it's received, is to give us a way to exalt in that truth so that the people of God can grow deeper in faith. Years ago, I heard a preacher use an illustration that I've used forever since that time about what faith is like. And he said, look, when you go to a doctor or a dentist, sometimes they will set you up with a device that will be life-giving or perhaps even pain-saving. And that substance you'll get there is for those who perhaps can't eat for themselves. You'll get a little intravenous needle, an IV, as they'll say. And that IV exists there to deliver the goods. When I was at the dentist, I got the little mask over my nose to function in the same way. Well, theologians will tell you that it is vitally important to establish that saving faith is not a new kind of good work that we do that somehow earns us salvation. But boy, it is really easy to try to think of it that way. Rather, faith is the instrument, we say, by which we receive the benefits of justification. In other words, faith is just like that IV. The question is not whether we all have one, it's what means are we using to draw off of it. That's how God brings us the benefits of justification. So chapter five is Paul's way of saying, look, I want to show you all of these wonderful things that are waiting for those who embrace Jesus by faith. Because the more joy that you take in how he's provided for you, the more uh, more you're going to lean on him and the more you're going to want to trust him. And so take the IV illustration as, an, as a metaphor. Paul wants us to receive three things. Number one, he wants to see what is being delivered by faith. He wants us to know why it works, why justification works. And then finally, how you'll know that it's working. Those are just my three simple points this morning. Okay, let's take that first one. What is it that faith delivers? This is the question. What is it that's coming through the IV or through the mask, right? Well, verses 1 and 2, Paul says that if you have been justified, your entire perspective on life has changed. Your past has changed. Your present understanding of yourself has changed. Even your understanding of the future as well. Let's take all three of those one at a time. First of all, Paul says, your past has now been resolved. Look at verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, notice what he's not saying. He is not saying that what we have, since we've been justified, is that we have the peacefulness of God. Back in the 1970s, a super rock group The Eagles wrote a song called A Peaceful Easy Feeling, right? That occurs to you whenever you're, I don't know, traveling down the open road. That is not what Paul is talking about here. The grammar actually suggests the peace he's referring to is more often used to talk about when there has been a cessation of hostilities. That is, the war between God and me is over because of our justification. Now, you would think that that would be good news for someone who hears it, but oftentimes I think whenever that announcement goes out, it rarely lands on the ears of a southern soul, as it were, with any real change. Why? I think one of the reasons is because justification doesn't mean all that much to us because we were never aware that we were actually at war with God in the first place. And when presented with the case, we end up getting very adept, do we not, at kind of spinning our our case in the best possible light. We'll say things like, well, okay, simmer down. I mean, I'm not trying to say I'm perfect or anything, but I mean, I'm not at war with God. I mean, it's not like, you know, I was ever sort of hating God in any particular way. But the problem is, that's how the apostle Paul puts it. Remember, we started this whole journey in Romans, in Romans 1.18, when Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So what Paul is saying is that God's war with sin includes him turning over sinners to the fruits of their sin. So yeah, it's a war. However, justification says that Jesus took his people's place. And so therefore, there has been a cessation of hostilities. We have achieved a permanent ceasefire between us and God. And so the Father is objectively no longer our enemy, but he's our friend. We've now switched to the winning side. We're now in God's favor. Now look, you have to realize that educated Oxfordians immediately reject this particular kind of thinking. This is absolutely abhorrent to people. They'll say things like, you know, here you people go again. <laughs> I mean, honestly, aren't we done with the offensiveness of saying that Jesus died on the cross to end a war between God and us? I mean, aren't we done with a Christianity that has to resort to that kind of guilt tactics to get converts? I've always And I've heard that, <clears throat> I've heard that kind of excuse often. But I often think it's kind of weird as well. Why is the announcement that the cessations are over would be something that would produce more guilt? Look, Imagine this for a moment, ladies. Let's say that you and your husband are working very hard to get out of debt. You're trying to get together a a loan for a new house, and so you work at it. You work at it for years, and finally, you pay off what you thought was your last credit card except for the fact that you discovered one last card that you weren't aware of that you had totally forgotten about that has thousands of dollars of debt on it that you had forgotten that you had. Well, But in the midst of your despair, as you're sort of feeling depressed about that, you get a call from a friend who says that there was a long-lost aunt that has passed away and has left you plenty of money to pay off that debt. Not only that, a little bit more that you can use as a solid down payment on your new house. Would you say to that person on the phone, ah, don't even tell me about all that. I don't want to hear anything about that inheritance because all it does is make me feel so dumb about how I was so silly to get in all this debt in the first place. <laughs> no, they wouldn't say that. That'd be crazy. But the truth is we live in a generation that hates the talk of sin. The idea of sin is completely avoided. If it's talked about at all, it's in the lightest possible way. But is it possible that in doing so, we've lost the elation that we could have if we had actually taken it seriously in the first place, and especially to the knowledge that Jesus paid it all? We're saying the war is over. God and I are now inextricably linked together in Christ. Okay, so our past has been resolved. There's no more hostilities. We have peace with God. Secondly, though, Paul says that justification has also resolved our present. How? By giving us access into what we were created to be. Look at verse 2. It says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Focus on that phrase. That's actually a pretty nice translation of the Greek there in that phrase, which literally means to introduce or or, or to bring near. And I want to try to illustrate it this way. When was the last time someone asked you, or you asked someone else, hey, um, where do you stand with so-and-so? What do they mean when they say that? They're asking, what is your status with that person? What kind of relationship do you presently enjoy with that particular person? Okay? Okay. You know, inevitably, whenever we watch young couples get together, um, they have to pass through what's oftentimes a very awkward conversation about the nature of what that relationship is. They'll say we need to define the relationship, because it's vital to know, because if I don't know the nature of this relationship, I don't know what's appropriate to expect from you, right? I, I used to always use the illustration with college students about our grandparents' generation who, when a young suitor would appear at the door to take the daughter out on a date, would look at them and say, so, young man, what exactly are your intentions with my daughter? Now, perversely, you and I in our day, we sexualize that question. I don't think that's what they meant. Rather, what they meant is, is look, hey, how do I come alongside my daughter and help her make sense out of your presence here? Why are you here? What are you thinking about it being here? Are you here just because you're looking for a buddy? Or are you here looking for something more? What is the nature of this relationship that you want have with her in your view? You see what the grandparent was saying? Well, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if you were to go to God and ask him to define the relationship between you and he, you know what he would say? He'd say one word, grace. The grace in which we now stand every Christian makes a very big deal out of the word grace (laughs) because it defines the substance of how we're doing. It is the category through which we interpret God's presence in our lives. And I'm telling you, the more you think about this, the more profound it gets because what it's saying is, is the only reason why I can say that everything's okay with God and I now is because it's something that he initiated. Purely by grace. Something that he established completely outside of any merit on my part. Okay, so you see our past is resolved. Our present is lived by grace. What about our future? We'll look at there at the end of verse two. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now we find out that justification has also secured our future as well. And and it does so by simply giving us something to look forward to. I really love this thought. Have you ever noticed that the thought that something is going to come come to an end will always invariably remove the joy in the moment. Okay, we're just coming off a spring break, so imagine this scenario, if you will. Let's say that the day before you head home, you're sitting on a beach, and you are relaxed, and you're in heaven. Nothing in the world to think about, except for this one thought. You gotta go home tomorrow. And you're thinking to yourself, are we adequately packed? Do, what do I gotta get back into? How much work is waiting on me when I get home? And isn't it interesting that the knowledge of what's coming tomorrow when I gotta go home can almost ruin the last day of my vacation, can't it? Because we're so preoccupied by the fact that it has to come to an end. Ah, but see, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying our rejoicing is this, the grace that we experience now is gonna go on and on and on and on. It's never gonna end. That's why, that's why we sing that song, the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness, his mercy does expand because glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Justification has secured my future and by doing so, it's also rescued every earthly joy. Whether it's a delicious meal, whether it's the smile of your children, whether it's the love of your spouse, because now those things don't ever have to end. That's the hope that we have. So past, present, and future have been secured. That's the goods. That's what's coming through the IV to all of God's people, Paul says in verses one and two. That's beautiful, isn't it? Secondly though, now we have to ask this question though, why is it that this works? How does it do? And honestly, verses six through 10 are so beautiful because it's sort of Paul becoming a pastor. Because Paul turns now to the topic of of assurance of salvation. Every single Christian has wrestled with this thought since they were converted. How do I know that I'm secure in this? I mean, really, how can I know that God's grace really applies to me? Verse 8 is a pretty well-known verse, isn't it? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's trying to give us a sense of assurance of salvation because he's trying to get us to think about it in the midst of our difficulties to say, look, look, wait, wait, stop and think about this for a second. Here's the logic. If God has already done the supremely difficult thing of dealing with this huge chasm between you and him, doesn't it make sense that we can trust him to do the comparatively simple thing of completing the task of securing our future. That's Paul's logic. Moreover, if God reconciled us while we were enemies, how much more can we trust him to finish our salvation now that we're friends? That's the logic. This is what verse nine means when it says, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Wrath of God, that's that same phrase that was used back in chapter one, verse 18, that fearful announcement of sin that's left us on God's bad side. But look, don't miss the logic here. Paul is saying, if God worked in you while you were raging against him in rebellion, why are we so quick to think that he's rejected me and left me when I encounter my sin even as a Christian? That's illogical, Paul says. I love it, he's applying the logic of salvation to us. Paul is trying to deal with a classic case of assurance misdirection. And what we always look to whenever we're wrestling with whether we're really truly saved. Because most of the time, we look on the inside for how well we're doing. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important to define sin as strongly as we did in these last couple weeks. Because so often, when we find ourselves doubting our salvation, it's because we're still under the impression that we had something to do with our being a Christian in the first place. And since it was on my shoulders ultimately to make myself a Christian, then I'm certainly able to un-Christian myself. And that's not true. But if I really am utterly helpless, then I certainly can't be worried that I'm suddenly not in a good relationship to God if I hadn't done something, if God had not been the one who did something to awaken my dead heart to the fact. Does that objectively mean that I'm in a state of grace? Not necessarily, but it absolutely does mean that God is not finished with me yet. Over and over again, we would talk when I was a campus minister with college students, and we would, would do sermons on salvation. And invariably, someone would come and be like, "I'm worried about this. How do I know? How do I know that God and I are okay?" They'd be in a panic about their assurance. But almost always, it came back down to them taking their sin too lightly, which is counterintuitive. Somewhere along the way, they had reduced their sin to something that was milder than the reality. So their being a Christian at all was still on their shoulders. See, this is how the logic of justification works. And Paul is saying it's life-changing as you sit down and you think about it. So that's how justification works. Finally, thirdly, how do I know that I've received this? What confidence that I can have that this is really mine? And this is actually worth camping out on because my premise is this. Paul thinks that the normal Christian life, if there be such a thing, is one of being assured of our salvation. I think I can state that better, actually. Paul wants us to be confident in what we have in Christ. He doesn't want us to be vacillating all the time in doubt. So in verse five, and again in verse 11, he gives his readers two tests. One test is subjective, the other test is objective. And he's saying these are places you can go to in order to root your confidence. Let's take both of them. First of all, let's take that verse five. Paul says in verses three through five that there is a progression that begins in our sufferings, but that ends in hope. And the reason why that hope is not something we need to be embarrassed of is, quote, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right, that's a very big deal. Because if you've been following along and paying attention, you will know this is the first time the Holy Spirit's been mentioned at all in the book of Romans. First time, right here in chapter five. What's he saying? Paul is saying that it is the Spirit's work to begin satisfying you with the doctrine of justification. Real, palpable, emotional satisfaction. There was a time, at least one time in your past when you can remember that this knowledge of this thing actually made you happy. You thought to yourself, wow, people ought to know this. Now, mind you, it's not a constant sensation for Christians. It's something that comes and goes. Paul actually encourages us to think of ourselves as as cups uh, with holes in it. Remember uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 7, where he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. That's what he means, little broken vessels that are constantly leaking. But he says to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In other words, the Holy Spirit is constantly trying to tell you how much God has done to show you his love. But it's never enough, is it? Why? Because we've sprung leaks. <laughs> We're leaky, right? And I realize that for a lot of us, we don't like that God leaves us leaky. Why wouldn't he make us supremely confident right out of the gate? Well, that's when Paul answers that question. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I <laughs> love that. He's trying to say, you're still addicted to yourself. And I'm trying to wean you from your independence by making you more dependent. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is not one who is perfect. The Christian is one who's more humble and more dependent. Okay, so verse 5 is Paul saying there is a subjective, which means it's coming and going sense, in which the Holy Spirit assures you that you're God's child. But secondly, there's an objective test as well. And this one is far more interesting, I think. Because there's lots of Christians who try to live their entire Christian life by the subjective experiences. And what you've experienced is is total burnout from it. That's what happens when we try to live off that emotional, peaceful, easy feeling that we feel like we get from the Spirit. There actually is, though, an objective test. And we see it there in verse 11 because it says that we rejoice in God through Jesus by whom we have received past Act, something that happened in the past and is now completed. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. Reconciliation is something that has been done above and beyond your feelings. It's a contract that's been, it's, 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 it's an armistice that's been signed. Reconciliation has been achieved. And what Paul is saying is, is once that gets inside of us, it changes the way we look at everything spiritually, which is why he wants us to live assured lives objectively, if my reconciliation is true, it shows up in signs. What are those signs? I had one uh, commentator who went through five things he felt like comes for people in the lives of people for whom reconciliation has come home as a fact. He says, first of all, when reconciliation locks inside you, you begin to have an entirely different approach to suffering. Verse three says we can actually rejoice in our sufferings. That's not some weird masochistic, oh, I'm suffering, how awesome. What it means is is I change the way that I think about suffering. If you've ever been through anything hard and awful in your own life, you realize that suffering oftentimes makes you think that I'm, that I'm being punished. We even say this, don't we? I don't know what I did to deserve this. For some reason, God is after me, we may say, or joke. But see, this is the deal. If we're reconciled to God, my suffering can never be punishment. That's impossible. Jesus got all the punishment. Rather, now, my suffering is the work of a master surgeon. He's trying to come in and root out the cancer in my life. Secondly, he says that my past starts to get healed. My past doesn't haunt me anymore because I look back at it and I totally reinterpret it around justification. It used to be that when I look back in my past, I would say things like, man, my life stinks. And that cynicism, we hated looking at our past. But see, here now, for when justification gets into you and you realize that you've been reconciled to God, you look back at those same events in your life and you're like, you know what? Now I see what God was doing. He was weaving this tapestry together to bring me where I am today. That's the difference. My past gets healed. Thirdly, this guy said, he said, whenever you discover a new character flaw, let's say you find a, a brand new sense of fearfulness in your heart. Maybe there's an opening chasm of a lack of self-control of something you thought you had licked years ago. He said what happens for Christians under that moment is, is when you get your reconciliation, the discovery of those things, it doesn't make you doubt God's love. But in the weirdest way, it makes you feel a little bit closer to him. Why? Well, because grace becomes more precious in your sight the more you know you need it. This is the reason why guys like J.I. Packer would say that in the weirdest way, growth in grace is actually a growth downward. We realize our need more and more and more, but you know what that does is that increases the size of of the joy that comes from Jesus's grace. In other words, we're supposed to be growing more dependent, which leads us into the fourth sort of characteristic of knowing you're reconciled. When you blow it big time, like big time, like you mess up spectacularly and your conscience comes after you and says all those things that your conscience does, like, oh my word, who are you to think you're a Christian? <laughs> God does not love you. Do you realize what you've done? Do you realize where you've been? When you blow it big time, when you're reconciled to God, you don't try to answer your, the words of your conscience with your own performance. When you're reconciled, you don't wake up and say, God, you don't understand I had a really bad day. Or, well, you don't understand. I've been under so much pressure lately. No, when you're reconciled, instead, you know what you say? You say, you know what? Even if I never did what I just did, even if I never was involved in that thing I said I would never do, that wouldn't make me more acceptable in his sight anyway. (laughs) Because the truth is, Jesus died for me. And his blood can cover a thousand worlds filled with millions of people a thousand times worse than me. That's what reconciliation does. He says, finally, what that does is, is that transforms you into a person who can now take criticism better. One of the reasons why we keep hating each other is because we create this vicious cycle. Someone criticizes me, and I take that opportunity to turn around and criticize them, and we never stop the anger circle. But when reconciliation gets inside your bones, when someone attacks your character, instead of being like, "Ah, that's not fair, or what about you? You're the great pivot. Instead, you know what we say? We say things like what Spurgeon said when someone angry at him was leaving his church. Spurgeon was outside his church and some elderly lady walked up to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I just want you to know that you're one of the most arrogant, conceited preachers I've ever heard. And I wanted to be the one to tell you. And off she marched. One of the elders sort of stood beside him and looked at Spurgeon with wide eyes and Spurgeon looked at him and said, she doesn't know the half of it. Don't you want to hang out with a guy like Spurgeon when people say stuff like that? Because why? Because his ability to absorb criticism through his sense of grace in his life has made them neutralize people's anger. And suddenly the level of societal irritation goes down. That's what the gospel's supposed to create in a culture. That's your salt and light, Christian. <clears throat> About a year ago this time, I had a, a minor medical procedure uh, where I had to be put to sleep for the very first time. Never been put to sleep for a medical procedure. And everybody told me it'd be so weird because you're, you're going to feel like no time passes from the time they put you to sleep and the time that you uh, wake up. But I remember as I was laying there and the nurse put the, put the IV in, right, <clears throat> that I, I lay there for a second. She said, okay, here comes the medicine, right? And I suddenly, after a second or two, felt this warm sensation coming up my shoulder and across my chest. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, I wonder if that's what they're talking about. And then I woke up. (laughs) most amazing thing ever, right? Look, justification and its benefits, that's what's coming through the IV of faith. That was this morning's sermon in one sentence. Justification is the medicine that's coming through the IV of faith. And it brings a sweetness because it allows us finally to rest. And what I'm hoping this morning is, is that when we come for worship and we close in a last song, that we have that sensation coming into our hearts where the Spirit is shedding it abroad. And we say to ourselves, I wonder if this is what they were talking about. That's what we're after. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you lead us into that? Because only your Spirit can do that, and the Spirit is mysterious. He comes and goes as he pleases. It's like the wind. We don't know where he's been or where it's coming from, but even this morning, we long to be assured, Father, would you make us a congregation of people who don't rest our assurance of salvation on the shifting sands of our performance, but rather cause us to cling to you tightly, longingly, so in the end we can look back and be those people that are full of joy and can change the world for it. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.